everyone. This is Jeffrey Kerr. I hope you are all enjoying your holiday season. As 2019 is coming to a close, this will mark the end of the first year of the Care Reviews podcast. It has definitely been a great year for me with launching the podcast, to growing it, to learning more about how to produce podcasts as I go along. I'd like to take this moment to give special shout-outs to each of the following guests I've been able to have on the show this year. Dan Bayer, Casey Lee Clark, Cordell Martin, Alex Meyer, Matt Naglia, Josh Parham, and Brandon Stanwick. I also thought it would be fun to take a look back at some of the most notable interviews I've conducted in 2019. The first interview I've ever officially conducted for this podcast was with actress Joy Franz. She is currently appearing as the Dowager Empress in the National Tour of Anastasia. The show came to Durham, North Carolina back in April. I even had the great pleasure of meeting her after the show. She gave me a quick tour backstage, signed my program, and was able to get a picture with me. Joy is not only a Broadway veteran, but also a veteran interpreter of Stephen Sondheim's work. Her most notable collaboration with Mr. Sondheim was when she originated the role of Cinderella's stepmother in the original 1987 Broadway production of Into the Woods. I was one of many theater kids who discovered Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's beloved musical through its PBS broadcast. I also knew that I couldn't do an interview with Joy Friends without talking about that show. Now on to Into the Woods, which is probably the most notable credit on your resume, and that was you originated the role of Cinderella's stepmother in the 1987 Broadway production. That was so much fun. I had a blast. Uh, James Lapine directed it. and uh, He also wrote the book. He also wrote the book, and he also is another wonderful, wonderful director. He allows you to bring whatever it is, to another collaborator. I had a wonderful time. I love working with him, too. Very, very, I feel very, very grateful. Yes, and in the years since the Broadway production closed, more people have discovered the musical through the PBS broadcast that was later released on DVD, Blu-ray, and has also appeared on quite a few streaming services. What was it like getting to have the show filmed? Uh, well, we had three cameras uh, up in the uh, balcony, and it really made it like a movie, like you were right there. Did you not feel that when you were watching it? Well, well, well yeah, it was definitely a cinematic filming of a Broadway musical, which, of course, nowadays we have stuff like Fathom Events and Broadway HD. Right. So it, but I think it was like kind of like the first to do it that way. I know they did that with Sunday in the Park with George a few years prior. With the three, the cameras and all of that? Well, well they at least filmed it professionally. Right. Exactly. And this was too, obviously. I just had a most marvelous time. And I'm just very grateful to be uh, able to have worked with Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine. I mean, their concept of taking all of the fairy tales and weaving them together to tell this wonderful story. And it's another that teaches the message that show taught. And it is iconic. Into the Woods has brought so many young people into the theater by that show. I can't believe I'm part of uh, an iconic show 
like that. I was supposed to have a, a song in Into the Woods when we were coming to Broadway at the very end when the, the step family's going to leave. And uh, no, I can't even remember what I said. Anyway, I was supposed to have a song there. But I didn't. That's what happens, you know. And some things get changed or cut before. I mean, when we were at uh, the Old Globe, Steve wrote No One Is Alone overnight, cutting that song. And Kim Crosby was sitting on the edge of the stage and was holding the, the sheet music. And when she started singing that song, tears just burst out of my eyes because it's so poignant and spiritual to me. I think it's a very spiritual song. Oh, and Mary Louise and myself, I was the mother wolf, so I had, you know, the very sexy wolf thing, and my Mary Louise was my baby wolf and teaching her how to huff and puff and blow the house down. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was very funny. But they needed to cut some things because the show was almost three hours long. And that's why uh, at the end of the first act, they had to add to be continued because people thought it was over. And it was hysterical. And so that's when they added that. And, you know, there was things, you know, you have to cut some things sometimes to make the show flow better and not so long. Well, yeah, as they say, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. That's exactly right. I love that. Thank you. I like that expression. I forgot about that. Anyway, <laughs> it was so much fun. I'm just so grateful. I keep saying that, but I am so grateful and honored to be a part of history in mm. theater. This past summer... Tony-winning actress Karen Ziemba came down to Raleigh to play Miss Hannigan in North Carolina Theater's production of Annie. I first became aware of her when I was watching the 2007 Tony Awards where she was nominated in the category of Best Featured Actress in a Musical for her performance in Curtains. When I had the great pleasure of interviewing Karen leading up to Annie, I got to ask her about a few of her collaborations with director-choreographer Susan Stroman, which included her Tony-winning performance in Contact. One of your collaborations with her was Contact, which you won your Tony Award for. And your category that year seemed to have some pretty good company with your co-star Deborah Yates, then 20-year-old Laura Benanti, Ian Hampton Calloway, and the legendary Eartha Kitt. So what do you remember about Tony Night back then from your win to the show-winning Best Musical? It was so exciting that Contact at Lincoln Center Theater won the Tony that night. It was an incredible piece. People that I speak to now that uh, mention it to me, still remember it very fondly and very because of the stories within the, the the evening were so moving and funny and i just i think a lot of people related to it and especially my piece uh which was about a housewife who went into her fantasies because she needed to escape her real life and i think a lot of people related to that too and i got letters and and um mentions from many women who said my god that karen that was my life you really nailed it that's how i you know felt for a long long time and and it was really beautiful and so that meant a lot to me for, for susan stroman it was just a, a labor of love that piece and a lot of the people in that i still am, uh, am close with you know any kind of a show and a lot of them are, that i've done with susan stroman where there is a lot of dancing 
and a lot of partner work where you're actually like in somebody's arms and dancing and being responsible for each other. It's you become very close in many ways, literally and figuratively, because of your, the relationship and the bond that you create or that naturally comes from having that proximity with somebody and having to worry about whether they're, you know, getting kicked in the head or, you know, or or the relationship you're having is two characters. And so I find that, and also with the tone that Susan Stroman sets because of her personality and her kindness and patience and sense of fun, even though she's very demanding, is sets the tone for, and it's a trickle-down effect. Everybody has this really wonderful experience. My memory of, of contact is such a, a positive one. Plus, Lincoln Center, working at Lincoln Center Theater is such a dream. The people there are so great. And so that was a wonderful time. But anyway, the Tony Award, uh, uh, yes, and that was really fabulous. <laughs> and I remember Eartha Kitt was sitting right behind me, and I was like, oh, my God, she's going to win. She's going to win. <laughs> you know, because she was, you know, sort of the iconic. She was an icon. And well, I was crazy about her. But you just never know. But... And then they called my name, and I got up, and I raced down there, and Rosie O'Donnell said, 45 seconds, that's all you guys are supposed to talk. Get on, get on get off. So I spoke pretty quickly and got off, and because uh, you don't want to preempt somebody else's musical number. You want to don't want to talk too much. And uh, that was it, and it was very exciting. And we all celebrated. It was a wonderful evening. It really was. And, th- and what was cool about it was that my very first big professional job in New York City was at Radio City Music Hall. There was a big summer show called Encores, and mm-hmm. I was in the one of the big numbers uh, that was the Broadway number in that show. So that was my first big professional gig, so I was very comfortable in Radio City Music Hall, even as large as it is. I felt very safe and warm up on that stage when I went up to accept the Tony, and it was, it was, like, coming, it was like coming full circle. Recently, I've been able to interview three performers who are originally from and or reside in Raleigh, North Carolina. First up is actor Alan Campbell, who audiences may recognize from his roles as Easy Taylor on the short-lived Three's Company spinoff, Three's a Crowd, and as Derek Mitchell in the CBS series Jenkins the Fat Man. He has been living in the Triangle area in recent years. In fact, when I first moved to Raleigh in the summer of 2013, the first theatrical production I saw down here as a resident was a musical review presented by Theatre Raleigh. Not only do I still have the playbill for that, but when I read through it a few years later, I realized that Alan Campbell was in the show. When I interviewed him last month, he was getting ready to take on the role of Sir Wilfred Robarts in Judson Theatre Company's production of Agatha Christie's Witness for the Prosecution. We were also a few days away from the 25th anniversary of Alan's Broadway debut in Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical adaptation of Sunset Boulevard, where he earned a Tony Award nomination for his performance as Joe Gillis. You originated the role of Joe Gillis in Andrew Lloyd Webber's stage musical adaptation of the 1950 Billy Wilder film Sunset Boulevard on Broadway. How did you get involved with that? I was living and working in L.A. I'd finished the five years on Jake and the Fat Man. You know, it it was kind of a little serendipity. I hadn't been singing much, and I missed it. So I was kind of taking voice lessons with a guy who had been preparing some other local musical actors to audition for Sunset Boulevard. And he just mentioned to me that I was the right type for it, the right age, and kind of the right voice. And he said, you ought to, you know, you ought to let your representatives know. And... 
audition yourself. And that's literally how it started. They were coming to L.A. They're, they'd gone to London, New York, L.A. over the course of several months to audition actors. And so I said, I have, I have nothing to lose. I didn't have a job at the time. The series had ended, and I was kind of looking for my next challenge and the next piece of work. Originally, I'd always wanted to be in musical theater for about a year and a half in New York before I, I moved to L.A. Uh, for a TV job. I was trying my best to get into a big Broadway musical, but never, never could get my foot in the door. So the opportunity to then kind of reinvent myself and kind of go back to what my first passion really was, combining all the things that, you know, dance, music, and acting that I thought would be the most gratifying, I, I jumped at the chance and began the audition process towards Sunset Boulevard. How long were you in the Broadway production? I, I was in it the whole time. I did it for nine months in L.A. when they first rehearsed and put the new version together. They'd moved it from uh, the West End, recast, rewritten large portions of it. And I guess it's Lord, um, Andrew Lord Weber now, and the, the powers that be decided that they wanted it to uh, premiere in L.A. It was a story about a movie star surrounded by the, the glamour of Hollywood and work on it out there hopefully for a, a transfer to Broadway. So I did it for nine months there. We had a few months break. And then I did the entire run in New York. I think almost 1,200 performances. And it took us through 1993 through 97. George Hearn, Alice Ripley, and I were all there the entire Broadway run. Mm. And, of course, Judy Kuhn had done Betty Schaefer in Los Angeles but was unable to continue with the show because she was pregnant with her daughter. So uh, Alice uh, took over the role in New York. One long-running tradition in the Triangle area is Theater in the Park's stage adaptation of A Christmas Carol. My mother even got to do some backstage work when she first lived in Raleigh back in the 80s. This past month, Theater in the Park celebrated their 45th anniversary production of A Christmas Carol. I even got to ask the star, director, and playwright Ira David Wood III about how it all began. And so going back to the beginning, how did the idea of doing your own stage adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol come about? It actually began when I saw the Nutcracker Ballet when I was a student at School of the Arts back in the late 60s. I had never seen a ballet performance before, having come from Halifax County. And when I attended the production of The Nutcracker by the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, and the curtain fell at the end, I couldn't get up out of my seat. I was just blown away by the magic of telling a story with music and dance. And I knew at that time that I wanted to be part of some kind of show like that during the holiday season that left people feeling the way I felt when I saw it. The next year, I wrote an original television show for uh, the local TV station in Winston-Salem called Christmas Is, and the title song in that television production is the song that opens our production of A Christmas Carol. Skip forward uh, to 1974, Theater in the Park was uh, doing a season of Shakespeare. We did Romeo and Juliet, Taming of the Shrew. And when we got to the Christmas season, a time in Raleigh when most of the theaters were closed, we decided that we wanted to put something on and keep our theater open because 
I figured that the holiday season was a time that families wanted to be together and to do things together. So since William Shakespeare hadn't penned a play about Christmas, we went to the second best English author and decided we would do A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. I wanted it to be a family show where entire families could come together. I wanted it to be a musical comedy rather than the traditional ghost story kind of dark version. I wanted Scrooge to be funny. I thought he was even more accessible as a character and it would be easy for the audience to identify with him because there's a little bit of Scrooge in everybody during the holiday season. I wanted him to have a teddy bear in Act 2 because I wanted the kids to be able to identify with him. Then he was just a big baby afraid of the dark. I wanted Christmas Future to be a befuddled undertaker rather than the scary version that Dickens wrote about so that it wouldn't frighten the kids. So that's the way we approached it, and the rest, I guess, is history. Most recently, Raleigh native Ariana DeBose gave two concert performances at the Kennedy Theatre. She's not only a rising Broadway star, but she could also soon be taking Hollywood by storm. Since completing her Tony-nominated run as Disco Donna in Summer, the Donna Summer musical almost a year ago, Ariana found herself cast in two major movie musicals, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story and Ryan Murphy's The Prom. Though before receiving any of those opportunities, she was in the original cast of what has become one of, if not the defining Broadway musical of the decade, Hamilton. When I interviewed Ariana DeBose, one of the many questions I had to ask her about was, of course, getting involved with the show, as well as witnessing it take off the way it did. And your last Broadway show in the ensemble was a little-known musical called Hamilton, so (laughs) how did you get involved with that? I have been involved in the development process of Hamilton for quite a number of years before we brought it to Broadway. It was it was very exciting. At one point, I participated in this small little reading that was very kind of off the books, as you were. And I was reading the music for Angelica. Mm. And then on, on another time, I was reading the music for the Peggy Mariah track. Mm. And then I was, and that was when I was still in Motown. That that started happening. Yeah, and then I was, I think I was about to go into Pippin Mm -hmm. when I participated in, what would we call it, a workshop. Mm -hmm. We did a workshop of the show, and I participated in that. And then after I finished my run in Pippin, I left to do the off-Broadway production of Hamilton at the Public Theater. Well, yeah, and long before Hamilton even started performances at the public, no one could have ever predicted how big it was going to become. So what was it like for you getting to experience that? Oh, it's, it was like being inside of a massive hurricane, you know what I mean? In the eye of a hurricane, there is quiet. <laughs> so, uh, it's a hard experience to describe. Many of us will say we won't have enough height on it until 10 years down the line. Mm-hmm. It all happened so quickly, but we know it was special. But it was really heartening and thrilling to watch so many people respond to to the story and, and to the show and its music and its message. People who don't normally frequent the theater were, were coming to the theater and bringing their friends and bringing their family members. That's really special when you when you can watch a work of art change the world in its own little way. It was really very cool. 
Well, yeah, shows like that come like once every generation. Right, right. I, I count myself incredibly lucky and blessed to have been a part of that journey. Well, yeah, in fact, on a side note, I was actually in New York during the weekend of the 2016 Tony Awards. I was even able to catch the Saturday matinee performance of Hamilton. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. That was quite the weekend. Well, well, yeah, it was definitely one of the most exciting trips to New York I've ever had. While it may now be the end of this podcast episode, it's only the beginning. Stay tuned for part two as we'll continue to reflect on the year that was 2019. If you love this show, please leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com slash podcast and follow the simple instructions. Feel free to subscribe to wherever you get this podcast. If you'd like to find more content from me, please visit my website, which is www.carereviews.net. You can also find it on Twitter at CareReviews and me at Jeffrey Care. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all later.